interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. This is the 20th Annual Institute of Biblical Studies. We have had some really terrific speakers here over the years, uh, Richard Pratt and D.A. Carson, Bill Edgar, uh, Stephen Um, and we're very privileged again this evening to have a distinguished uh, scholar and and very well-respected speaker with us. Uh, His name is Cornelius Plantinga. And a few of you have said to me recently, Plantinga, gee, that name sounds familiar. Didn't you just have that guy here last year? And the answer is, not exactly. Uh, We did have a fellow here whose name was Al Plantinga. That would be Neil's brother, who is a philosopher, neither of whom should be confused with the other brother who has taught at Yale for 40 years, or the cousin who's a philosopher in Canada, or any of the other many, many Plantingas. This is a family that's kind of like the Christian intellectual aristocracy. And, you know, I, in any case, uh, this evening's speaker, uh, Cornelius Plantinga, is currently the president of Calvin Theological Seminary, where he has taught systematic theology for many years. He's also a minister in the Christian Reformed Church. He has been educated at Calvin, Yale, at Calvin Seminary, Princeton Seminary, and Cambridge. I think that's enough. He's the author of uh, several books, including Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin, which won the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award some years ago, and um, another little book entitled Engaging God's World, A Christian Vision of Faith, Learning, and Living, which um, I would say is as fine a short manifesto of Christian education as I have ever seen. And in fact, over the Christmas break, we had all the men in Chesterton House read this book, which was something we had actually decided on even before we had invited our speaker. We just chose this as the book we really wanted everybody in the house to read. Uh, I will have several copies of each of these books available for purchase tomorrow at Bethel Grove. So I invite you to bring your checkbooks and to make sure that I don't have to return any of these. If when I was an undergraduate student here, I attended a lecture that opened in prayer, I would have thought that very odd. And yet that's what we're going to do this evening, strange though it may be. Uh, And we're going to do so in part because this is the Institute of Biblical Studies, um, but also because we believe that we have a God uh, who we can pray to, who hears us, and um, who gives us the reason for gathering together even in venues such as this, including academic lectures. Um, If you're visiting this evening, I invite you to simply observe as others of us join together in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for all things. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, uh, for the beauty of the world that you have made, the gift that it is to us. We thank you, Lord, for this very day which you have made and entrusted to us as a gift. We thank you, Lord, above all for your Son who reconciles us to you and reconciles us to one another and for your Spirit, our comforter and our companion. 
We thank you, Lord, for our guest, Dr. Plantinga, for the talents you've entrusted to him, for his stewardship of those talents. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to know you and to understand you better through the message that he has to share with us this evening. I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to our guest, Reverend Dr. Cornelius Plantinga. Well, men and women, it's uh, a delight for me to join you tonight. I have not been to Ithaca before. I've been to Watkins Glen years ago. Um, wonderful to visit the campus of Cornell and to drive around in town and see Cayuga Lake and the beautiful campus. I'm much impressed by the size of the quadrangle, which is about four times bigger than any quad I've seen on other campuses, including some pretty important ones. And the the hills, um, the wonderful creeks and gorges. Uh, this is uh, truly a gorgeous place to be, and uh, congratulations on being here. I'm also very pleased to uh, speak tonight on the 20th anniversary of the Institute of Biblical Studies uh, to enjoy the hospitality of my hosts um, who have been so wonderful and warm, Carl Johnson and David Jones and um, Steve Frelick. I was trying to remember who I was not remembering. Uh, let me give you a little preview of what I hope to do. I want to talk uh, tonight about dying and rising with Jesus Christ as the main way that Christians acquire Christian virtues. Christian virtues, you know, appear all over the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul. And Paul says things like, since you have been raised with Christ, there's the rising with Christ part. Since you've been raised with Christ as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. That's forbearance. That means putting up with people who drive you crazy. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. One of the hardest callings that anybody has, whether Christian or not. Forgive each other as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect harmony. Christians are not the only people who have the virtues of kindness, compassion, humility, obviously not. But Christians want these virtues for particular reasons. Christians want these virtues because they please God. Christians want these virtues because they are part of the image of God. When you are patient, with somebody who truly irritates you, you are like God. God has this happen all the time. <laughs> the virtues are all part of the image of God. The virtues are also a way of showing that the people who have them, who are Christians, have died and risen with Jesus Christ. These virtues fit people who have been raised with Christ. They're part of the family uniform of the people of God. And these are the virtues that, when massed together with the virtues of Christians all over the world and with anybody else whom God has given these virtues to, whether Christians or not, these virtues all contribute to the dwelling together in harmony, justice, and delight 
of God's creatures, a state of affairs that Christians following the great writing prophets of the Old Testament call shalom. The New Testament calls it the coming of the kingdom of God. The Old Testament, especially in the big chapters of Isaiah, call it shalom. So the virtues are part of imaging God. They are part of being raised with Christ, showing that we have been raised with Christ. They are also, and I'm going to start with this tonight, they are also evidence in Christian communities that people who claim to have been born again actually have been. In one of the most famous texts of the Bible, Jesus says that people need to be born again or born from above. It depends on how you interpret John 3, or exegeted, actually. To enter the people, the kingdom of God, people need this miraculous thing to happen, being born again. But here a big question comes up. If this wondrous thing did happen, how would you know? And to help us think about that question, I want us to go back in... American history to 19 to I'm sorry to 1746 when Jonathan Edwards America's greatest theologian no doubt wrote a book in order to judge a dispute the dispute centered on the great awakening a huge new england revival of the 1730s 40s in which edwards himself had taken a leading role in the heady days of the 1730s Edwards had preached powerful sermons in Northampton, Mass, and had seen powerful results. People's lives changed. People began to speak not only of their fear of God, but also of their new sense of God and even their new taste of God's sweetness. People said that they could see God and hear God. And so they walked joyously to Sunday worship. They opened their Bibles and read their Bibles with an appetite. Guys who used to get drunk and beat their wives quit doing it, started mending some of the quarrels their drunkenness had caused. All these things were wonderful signs of conversion, turning away from sin, turning toward God. And, of course, Jonathan Edwards loved conversions and hoped to see lots of them. But when the Great Awakening swept through New England in 1740, pushed along not only by such great evangelists as Jonathan Edwards, but also by George Whitfield, and then also by Whitfield wannabes, guys who followed George Whitfield as freelance imitators, when this began to happen, strange things appeared. People started to sob and faint at religious meetings. They fell on the ground. They trembled. They growled. They groaned. They got high on the spirit. They began to twist and shout. People filled their conversations with Jesus' name and reported direct communications from Jesus. People filled their conversations with religious things. Enthusiastic believers in the Great Awakening of the 1740s, were, were sure that their faith was attaching to Jesus Christ. Couldn't they feel it? Couldn't they feel their own joy awaken and their own certainty become firm? But Edwards found himself at the center of a dispute. On the one hand, you had all of these believers who were certain that they were part of a great movement of the Holy Spirit of God. 
On the other hand, people looked at all of these strange signs and saw religious nonsense, or they saw madness, or they saw fraud, or demonic possession. Boston intellectuals, especially Unitarians in Boston, at that time many of whom were pretty evangelical, Boston Unitarians looked with dismay at these special signs. All that shrieking, all that loss of decorum, all that loss of dignity. Did all of this commotion really fit with what St. Paul called a sober and right mind? People were raising plenty of questions about the special signs of the Great Awakening. Was it the Great Awakening or the Great Lunacy? Edwards and his own congregation had led the revival in the 1930s, in the 1730s, and they knew that if a person got born again or regenerated, it would not be surprising if there were some real changes in this person's life. Some of Edwards' supporters believed that such conversion would come with the force of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would shake people up, rattle their dry bones. To some of Edwards' followers, conversion meant a whole lot of shaking and rattling going on. It meant signs and wonders, some of them pretty spectacular. We can imagine how they thought. If you have a stiff and religiously indifferent councilman who one night starts rolling in the aisle, who but the Holy Spirit could break this guy's pride and start him rolling? So Edward's task was to judge a dispute between people who said these controversial accompaniments of the Great Awakening were signs of the presence of God and other people who said that these spectacular signs were evidence of the presence of hysteria or worse. After a lengthy search of scripture, Edward reached his conclusion and wrote it up in a book entitled A Treatise on Religious Affections, one of the smash hits of the 18th century. <laughs> Treatise on Religious Affections. In his book, Edwards concluded that the controversial signs tell us very little about the sincerity or genuineness of the conversion of the people who had them. Given everybody's tendency toward self-deception, Edwards said, it's hard to tell whether these signs come from God or from people's overheated imaginations or from somewhere else. And so, he says, if you want to make a test for true religion, shaking and rolling are neither here nor there. Take them if you like, or leave them if you like. But don't hang anything of significance on them because the true center of true religion lies quite somewhere else. So where does the center of biblical interest lie where true religion is concerned? According to Edwards, the question how we may judge real godliness and real sincerity, the way you tell whether it's likely that somebody actually has been born again by the Spirit of God, is whether they have what he called a godly practice. Do these people make a godly practice, the center of their lives, just in the same way that a physician makes medicine, the practice of medicine, central in his or her life? And do folks keep on in the practice of godliness for the long run of their lives? 
or just in little spurts while other folks are watching. Of course, in arguing for the practice of good works, Jonathan Edwards was not discounting the place of prayer or of Bible reading or of attendance at public worship for preaching and sacraments. He prescribed these things as basic spiritual exercises by which Christians commune with God, deepen their relationship with God and with fellow believers. But how genuine is somebody's practice of these exercises? Given the danger of hypocrisy, how would a convert know he wasn't just thrilling himself at a church service while ignoring God? How would he know he wasn't deceiving himself? Edwards, by the way, this is a sidebar, Edwards wrote a lot about hypocrisy, and his conviction was that hypocrisy can be conscious, you know, you know you're faking it, but it's much more dangerous when it goes underground and becomes unconscious. Edwards thought of Phariseeism as exhibit A in unconscious hypocrisy, blind leaders of the blind. And Edwards' conviction was that your beginning hypocrite may know he's false, and your recovering hypocrite may know he's false, but your deep-dish hypocrite thinks he's sound as a dollar. So the way to tell, in case you can tell, and Edwards leaves some room for doubt about whether you can tell in all cases, but if you could tell whether somebody's profession of Christian faith, of regeneration, was authentic, is not by noticing how much such people talk about Jesus. According to the Gospels, people say, Lord, Lord, all the time, and don't necessarily impress God by saying it. After all, talk is cheap, and Edwards uses almost exactly that locution. To follow Jesus, people have to practice what he preached. And what Jesus preached was that a good, free, a good tree is known by its fruit, not by its twigs, not by its leaves, not by its heaving branches. A good tree is known by its fruit. And a Christian is known by her godly practice, not by her good intentions or her pious talk or her spiritual hand-waving. A good Christian is known by producing actual fruit. And a good Christian is known by producing, therefore, actual good works. Edwards had a theory according to which true religion is based centrally on the leap of the heart toward what's good and the repulsion of the heart from what's evil, so that a person's whole life as a believer is a sequence of yeses and nos to what comes into life. Almost a lifelong commentary on Romans 12:9: let love be genuine, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then Edwards said, now if your heart is leaping to what's good, what kind of a life is natural and fitting for somebody whose heart leaps to what's good? A good life, a fruitful life, a life of Christian practice. And here's where he starts to talk about the Christian virtues. But can't good works be counterfeited? Of course. People can make a show of them too. Try to get credit for them. Try to get credit... Not for doing good, but for looking good. Absolutely. And Edwards knew all about it. And so he says, to see whether people, and now we may include ourselves if we are believers and want to personalize this, to see whether we ourselves are genuine 
in our Christian profession and practice to see whether we have the spirit of God and not just the spirit of self-advancement is to see whether our good practices cost us anything. Are we willing to accept the pain of new life as well as the joy? And those of us who are Christians may take this question to ourselves. A question whether we are Christians or maybe are interested in becoming Christians or at least are interested in the Christian phenomenon, here's a question for all interested parties. Are we willing to accept pain in gaining new life as well as joy? Are we willing to praise God all the way through hay fever season? Do we give money away that we would rather have kept? And do we eventually find satisfaction in doing so? Do we accept other people's suffering as a shared burden and take some of it into our own lives so that we bear some of their burden? Do we put the best face on other people's motives while also suspecting our own? When we know somebody, maybe in our hall, deeply needs a friend, but is also really boring. I mean the kind of person who could make you yawn over a tornado. Do we say to ourselves, you know, this person is really boring, but also really needs a friend. I think I'm going to spend some time with this person, with this lonely and boring person, in the hope that this person's ability to be boring will be so intense as to rise to genius level and therefore become fascinating. <laughs> That's a really Christian response to a boring person who needs a friend. Only God knows a human heart, but we can see people's practice. And generally speaking, we can tell a good heart by the good deeds that express the great yeses of the heart. You might say in the terms of Galatians 5, express the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, generosity, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit are the virtues of a Christian life. Half the time, the Bible acts as if these are sheer gifts from God, given by the Holy Spirit. And the other half of the time, the Bible regards these virtues as acquisitions by Christian persons. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That's a great paradox, and that's nothing against it. The Christian virtues, having and expressing these virtues, is the way life is supposed to be. Christians are not the only persons who have them, but Christians want these virtues for special reasons. They please God. They show the image of God. They fit people who have been raised with Christ. They are real evidence of probably an authentic regeneration. They contribute a lot to shalom inside your own psyche, in your community, however big or small, in the church, in the kingdom of God, in the world, Christian virtues are very precious things. Now, I think that the major way 
the New Testament discusses the acquisition of the virtues is by way of dying and rising with Christ. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. But let me add, before we get to it, that it takes a lot of faith to believe that you have been regenerated. The evidence isn't always entirely there. It takes faith to believe that our old nature is doomed and that one day our old habits will fall away. Maybe above all, it takes faith to believe that God loves us while we are yet sinners. I'm speaking now as a Christian. It remains true all along that people are justified by grace alone and through faith alone. Of course, good works don't save anybody, but they are more than a pleasant option. They are the deep grain evidence that somebody has risen with Jesus Christ. I know that this talk about good works makes a lot of Christians nervous, and especially for Lutheran brothers and sisters, very nervous. But what if focusing attention on the need for good works would lead us into more faithful dependence on God when we see that our generating of them is pretty weak? What if seeing that good works are the expectable fruit of regeneration we would note them with gratitude in the lives of people who professed the name of Christ. We are not trying to graft a Ben Franklin program of self-improvement onto union with Jesus Christ, never. But neither can any Christian say that once your sins have been forgiven and you have the hope of heaven, the game is pretty much over. Oh, no. There's a whole life of Christian practice there's a whole life of becoming a prime citizen of the kingdom of God. There's a whole life of bringing your new life into the lives of others and blessing them with it. And for that, every single Christian person needs some of the virtues. And I want to say to you tonight that the principal biblical description of how you get them, of what, so to speak, our end is, they are God's gift. They are also our calling. When you're talking about our calling, how do you get them? The principal description is that of dying and rising with Jesus Christ. Now, let me say something about this great dynamic of the Christian life. When we're talking about the dynamics of the Christian life, we're talking about how the Christ life gets into people how it gets, so to speak, imprinted on people, how it gets ironed into their pattern of thinking and living and speaking and hoping and dreaming and yearning and acting. Colossians 3 begins like this. Since you have been raised with Christ. Some translations say, if you have been raised with Christ, but it's the same kind of if if you said to a college student, if you're a college student, you might worry about money once in a while. Of course. If you're a college student, you're probably thinking about the job market from time to time. If you're a college student, you wonder how all that you're learning is actually going to apply when you get to the job market. In other words, since you're a college student, you're thinking about all these things. If you've been raised with Christ has the same force as since you have been raised with Christ. Now, whatever is Paul talking about? That sounds as if we were dead, 
And I mean, here we all are um, on the campus of Cornell University on a Friday night, thinking about what follows this lecture and hoping that it's not going to go on too much longer, and it's really not. It's a finite uh, number of things I have to say, and I've already said quite a few of them. Um, I mean, those aren't, you know, wondering about these things isn't usual for people who are dead. So what could it mean to say people have been raised with Christ? Well, there are a couple of meanings before the meaning that I want to get to in just a minute. And one of them is that Paul is always thinking corporately. When Jesus Christ died, he didn't die alone. When Jesus Christ walked out of Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, he did not walk out alone. He was the second Adam, the head of a new race, and God saw all of his believers and followers walking out with him. The head goes nowhere without the body. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Oh, yes. And sometimes it causes you to tremble. Some of the time when Paul talks about dying and rising with Christ, he means 29 A.D., the whole body of Christ died and rose with him because he was the first Adam, the head of a whole new race. But some of the time, and in Colossians 3, this is probably what he's talking about, some of the time when Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, he means, since you have been baptized. Big emblem of baptism in Colossians 2, the previous chapter to Colossians 3. I'm kind of proud of myself that I noticed that. Big emblem of baptism in Colossians 2 is going down into the Red Sea and coming up on the other side, just like the children of Israel in their exodus. Baptism is going down into the death and coming up alive on the other side. And by the way, and I say this as a member of a denomination that sprinkles, <laughs> the right emblem for baptizing is immersion, in my humble opinion. Because what you're trying to represent is going down and coming up. You're trying to represent going down into a grave and coming up into life. Sprinkling is an appetizer. <laughs> Sprinkling just gets you used to water that you never go under. And if you wonder whether those of us who baptize infants would find sprinkling and would find immersion an obstacle? Of course not. All the world's Greek Orthodox Christians immerse infants every time they baptize them. I was talking to a Syrian Orthodox priest about this one day, and he said, well, you know, they have this great big baptismal bowl that they immerse infants in. He says, there's about a 1.5 second lag until the infant figures out that something really weird has gone on. <laughs> and starts to wail. The sign, of first sign of new life. <laughs> Colossians 3, one of the great, great Christian living chapters in the whole Bible. And by the way, if you want to remember some of the Christian living chapters of Paul, think of this. Colossians 3 plus Ephesians 4 plus Galatians 5, equals Romans 12. You've got your arithmetic values going on there. You've got your alphabetic values going on there. This works a couple of ways. Colossians 3, plus Ephesians 4, plus Galatians 5, equals Romans 12. 
And what Paul says in Colossians 3 is that since you have been raised with Christ, that is, when he died and rose, you did, and because you have been baptized, now keep the rhythm going. Keep on dying and rising with Christ. Put to death your old nature with all of its lusts and its angers and its wrath. Put to death everything that's part of the old person in you and let your new life rise like Jesus walking out of his tomb. Paul uses baptismal imagery to talk about it. Clothe yourselves. It's like putting on a new gown, a new baptismal robe to signify that you're under new management. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all the virtues of Christ, all the fruit of the Spirit, all the things that show that you have been born again. You've gone down into death and you've come up on the other side. Acquisition of Christian virtues and then living life the way it's supposed to be all stems from keeping on dying and rising with Jesus Christ. In classic Christian doctrine, it's referred to as mortification, that is, killing the old self, letting the old self die, more actively taking out a contract on your old self, letting your new self arise, the self that is more like you than you have ever been. You we are, as John Ortberg puts it. You are you -er when your new self arises. You are more like you. Each one of us is an unrepeatable divine thought. Each one of us is an absolutely unique divine inspiration. And when you, if you are a believer, if you're almost a believer, if you're thinking about maybe one day being a believer, if you rise with Jesus Christ, you will be youier than you ever dreamed on the sunniest Friday afternoon of your life. Some of us, because we are university students at one of the nation's great universities, have studied ethics. We know that there are lots of ways of figuring the moral life. There's so-called deontological ethics, which has to do with determining right or wrong independent of the consequences that follow or sometimes even of the primary intended consequences that might follow. There are utilitarian ethics that depend a lot on consequences in order to validate as right or wrong the action that you're contemplating taking. There are virtue ethics, you know, acquire virtues and then do what people with those virtues would naturally do. There are lots of ways of cutting the pie ethically. And the Bible is not technical when it comes to these schemes of ethics. Some of the time the Bible looks like it's just a divine command book. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Some of the time the Bible sounds like it's teleological or utilitarian. Honor your father and mother. Why? So that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Some of the time the Bible sounds like a virtue ethics book. Clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, then you'll be good. Then you'll figure out what's next because you have these virtues perking in you and they are determining how you will act and think. Well, Colossians 3 is a virtue chapter and it suggests very, very strongly that the main result when people die and rise with Jesus Christ and keep on dying and rising with Jesus Christ 
is that compassion starts to show up. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love, peaceableness, and gratitude. Gratitude, probably the most powerful engine of joy in a human life. Gratitude, the way you say thanks to God is by living the life that God wants the you-er you to live and has planned on your living from eternity. Americans who celebrate the 4th of July next summer will do a whole lot of stuff to show that they are Americans. They will shoot off cannons. They will put on 18th century costumes. They will shoot off cherry bombs uh, even when they are not legal. They will light sparklers. They will make speeches. They will march. They will play band. They will play band instruments. They will do all kinds of stuff. What do those things say? All those things say, when done by Americans, we are people of the battle for independence and of all that that battle and its outcome mean. We are those people. We are identified with those events. We are the people of those events. We are Americans. People who are baptized into Jesus Christ, God is saying, you are the people of the incarnation and the teaching and the life of Jesus. You are people of the cross and the empty tomb. You are people of all those events and of their meaning. And we hereby on this day identify this child or this adult with those events and say, you are a person of those events and of all that they mean. What Colossians 3 says is, okay, you're on this trajectory. Keep it going. Keep on dying and rising with Jesus Christ. For the rest of your life, there will be some, some faults, some fondest lusts, some favorite sins that need to keep on dying. Keep on dying. Some of the sins that get into human life are like beach balls that you're trying to submerge. You can submerge them for a couple of seconds and there they go popping right back up again. Some of these sins are terrific swimmers and they need to be submerged all the time. But year by year, first month by month, first week by week, then day by day, hour by hour, the person who wants to take out a contract on an old self that is dying away and who wants a new self to rise powerfully and beautifully, that person is dying and rising with Jesus Christ. And the virtues are going to come because that is the natural outcome of death and resurrection with Jesus Christ. Men and women, that's what I came here tonight to say, and now I've said it. So um, it's very wise to stop when you have said what you had to say, and I'm going to try to be wise and do that. So that's all she wrote. Let me add uh, one uh, f footnote, um, which is what people always do when they say they have stopped. They, they really haven't. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to talk about compassion, humility, and forgiveness as examples of the virtues. And in each case, you know, you'll be able to understand what has to die before these wonderful virtues can arise. In the case of compassion, aloofness has to die. Indifference has to die. Hard-heartedness has to die. In the case of humility, pride, arrogance, self-centeredness have to die. In the case of 
forgiving those who have hurt us, malice, resentment, have to die. One of the most painful deaths that any Christian undergoes is the death of anger that they have a right to, which is what I mean by forgiveness. So uh, 